This is The Insecurity Project. If you are looking to solve the insecurity problem in your life, rather than just manage it, mask it or medicate it, you have come to the right place. This is the home of high-quality content and conversations about how to overcome insecurity. If you can do that, it's not just good for you, it's not just good for your friends and family, it's good for the world, so it's kind of important. There's some work to do here, but let's go do this work together. Now on to today's show. Hi folks, you're on the Insecurity Project podcast with Jamin. Today my guest is Joel Primus, all the way from Vancouver. Well, just outside of Vancouver, a little yeah. farm. And Joel is a, a former athlete. He is an entrepreneur, an author. Uh, he has done some amazing things with his life and as we'll soon hear. I'm fascinated to really talk to Joel about uh, his, his journey from transitioning his identity from defining as an athlete and an entrepreneur to um, understanding the impact of insecurity and what next. So I'm sure you'll enjoy this conversation. And Joel, thanks so much for being on the podcast. It's my absolute pleasure. I'm a big fan of the work you're doing. And I, I'm sure that, you know, for, I'm sure everyone who listens to your podcast has bought your book, but I, I cannot believe how important it is. And I don't, I don't want to blow too much smoke, but (laughs) (laughs) it absolutely deserves it. And I wish I had read the book when I was 19. I, I, I really do. We get it at the right time, but like, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, sure. but it's so good. It was a, it's a gift. Mm, and I don't say you. that about a lot of books that I mm. read. So, uh, Thank you very much. It's, it's certainly been something I've poured my whole heart and soul in. And, and whenever I get feedback like that, it's just, it's very meaningful because, you know, growing up reading books and being um, moved and challenged and changed by other people's work, the dream of going, I wonder what, wonder if it was possible to contribute out of my own essence, out of my own journey in the same way and for someone else to find that useful. So it's always a remarkable thing to have someone say, yeah, you've, you've contributed meaningfully in an area uh, and added to the conversation. So, yeah. And the thing about books that's so cool. And I think this will be the case for your book is, you know, like some of the most impactful books I read are getting written, whatever, like 1900, late 1800s, maybe a bit later. And it's like, those books found me a hundred and twenty, a hundred and ten years later, and that's when the subject matter is is timeless because mm. it's subject matter of the soul and and mm. everything else. So I think that you've you've captured that vibe, and I think that people will be finding that book for years to come. <laughs> wow, thanks, Joe. Um, so tell us about where it started for you. I'm always fascinated by the beginning of the journey. Uh, just because we all start from different places. And I, I think still people imagine that, that um, they're the only one who's had their experience and that's why they're stuck. But, but hearing different people's story, it's always amazing what impact parents had, what impact certain events had, uh, and just how they got to where they are today. So tell us what it was like growing up in your family and, and the impact your parents played on kind of shaping your psyche, your, your sense of self and your beliefs as a young man. Yeah, which they do. I, I was curious how you phrase that, you know, we always, cause it's true. We always think that it's this, like this bad experience. Like I had that experience and I was the only one. And, and, and I've definitely felt that way about certain things. And now it's like the experiences I'm having 
and who's having them at the same time as me and like finding people wherever they are in the world that you can kind of have this kindred brotherhood or sisterhood or just unity with where you're in it together, right? It's not just the past, it's the present, it's the worry about the future. And, and that's like to your point about the things that shape you. And, and I, I was mad at my parents for a long time um, inside, not expertly. I'm, I'm taught to be nice. So, <laughs> so I'm, I'm generally pleasant, but that doesn't mean there's not a storm going on inside. And, uh, and where that, I guess where that storm arose from that I didn't realize was I was, I was, I guess, this quasi elite runner. And by quasi, I mean, I had a really wonderful career, but if you put pitched me against any Kenyan or Ethiopian, they might have had something else to say about my, uh, my eliteness, but, uh, but it was, it was a good career. And, and, um, and what I didn't realize was happening when I was, was doing this until years later was that I started to put all my self worth in running, right? There was kind of like these two sides, this duality to it, where one side was, I was in love with being in nature running. I'm sure you were, you're a runner. You know, I'm sure you feel that the, the air, the blood flow, the trees, it just calms the mind. And on the other side, the, the winning, because I was fortunate enough to win quite a bit. And it taught me, it had this, what I call this, this feedback loop that you think is positive. Winning equals praise, praise equals I'm good. And all of a sudden, when that, the vacuum, like whatever, you transition out of that in life and that vacuum sucks it out and it's gone and you lose that praise and then I feel good. All of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, who am I? What do I do? What's my worth? And all these different things. But, but what was a really defining moment for me, there's a couple of them, was I became anorexic as a runner mm. after competing at the world championships. And it's a very common thing for women. It's, a, it's unfortunately the sport is plagued with that struggle for women. Um, and I think that there's a lot changing in that now, but that's, that's, a, that's a different conversation. But for me, I went to the world championships and I got toasted, like just toasted by everyone, right? And I, I just developed in my mind that it was because I was too big. I was too big as a runner. And so I literally starved myself while running 80 miles a week or 120, 30 kilometers a week, um, depending on where you're listening from. And it got to the point where my whole body broke down. And I, and I realized years later that I didn't have a, an eating disorder problem. I had an ego and insecurity problem. I had a self-worth problem. And, and that was just a byproduct of it, right? And I didn't realize that until I was 27, 28, you know, 10 years later after I'd ruptured my Achilles and lost my scholarship and ran away I hitchhiked across the country. I went traveling um, to Asia and then down to South America. And I didn't realize that I wasn't dealing with anything. I was just masking that void, that initial little void. And if we go back to like where the parents shaped me, it's again, they don't know any better because parents are, parents are dealing with their own dreams, their own insecurities, their own failures, their own sadnesses. And, and so 
they didn't tell me it was okay. They didn't tell me it was okay not to run. They didn't tell me it was okay not to win, right? And, and so I didn't accept that in here. Mm. Uh, so the sense of pressure was confirmed. The sense of pressure you brought on yourself was confirmed by them and it kept that feedback loop playing that you were winning and your only value was in winning. And so if you couldn't win and you couldn't run, then who were you and what were you worth? Absolutely. And I, it's funny when you look back and we can, you know, cause in your book, you've used this Michael Jordan example of, of this man who, who was fueled by this insecurity, um, maybe similar to mine. I mean, his was kind of like his brother, right? Was it his brother that, that rivalry with his brother that kind of Absolutely. fueled Absolutely. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, who, whoever his mind was, it's the same sort of thing where he, you know, here years later, that insecurity and fueled him to the most incredible heights a human maybe has ever achieved athletically, five or six others like him. And Phelps talks about this. Um, he talked about this. He suffered anxiety and depression for years um, after, even before his last Olympics mm. as a swimmer. Uh, I wonder what would have happened if I'd never snapped my Achilles and I just stayed in it mm. for another decade potentially, right? Because you can, you can run a, an elite level till you're 30. But instead, that snapping took, I thought the course was this to the Olympics. It, it branched off in another way and opened the door for self-discovery, mm. you know, sooner than later. And so it's, it's kind of interesting to think back on that. And, and you know, it's like at the time, it, the world is, is ending because of this. And I'm just wallowing in it. And then you know, all of a sudden you realize, oh, wait, maybe that was the right thing. <laughs> maybe I was supposed to branch off and go down this different path. Yeah, fascinating what shows up and when it shows up. Um, so tell us a bit about that branching off. Tell us what happened when you couldn't be the, the runner. And so you had to find another way of validating yourself, I suppose. What, what happened to fill that void? Yeah. That, and that's what we do, right? We find a way to validate yourself. And I was, and again, I, because I was so in it, I, I was so determined that I, I found that validation very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, at first it was, I was going to film this movie about traveling the world. And so I went off and it's like, you know, you're telling everybody in your little small town where I'm from that I'm making this movie. And it's like, wow, wow. And really like, I mean, this, my brother and I with a video camera. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then when I, um, when I got to Peru, I needed underwear. And like, like literally by the time I got to Peru, my underwear was in shambles <laughs> and it was all crap to begin with. And so I bought some beautiful Peruvian underwear from, uh, sorry, P Pima cotton underwear from this Peruvian street market, which Pima cotton's like the most delicate, fine cotton, one of them. And so I was like, oh my gosh, this feels so like, this is like way better. But then I hiked up Machu Picchu and I was, I was like, oh, that doesn't perform very well. And so this idea came into my head. It's like, how do I combine the, the best, of my running technical clothing with this ultra soft thing, mesh them together to create this new standard for men's underwear. And it was like, it's a genuine inspiration. Hmm. It's as genuine as 
anyone who's sitting around and all of a sudden has this like problem that they need solved and they want to go after it. There's nothing wrong with the inspiration or chasing an idea. Um, that's a beautiful way to live your life in pursuit of your own creativity and, and to see what you can do. But what I didn't realize was because I hadn't dealt with that insecurity. And then all of a sudden I'm on national TV, I'm in big department stores, that feedback loop starts happening again. Success uh, equals praise equals self-validation. Again, I didn't realize that I wasn't dealing with the underlying problem. And eventually it creeps up. It creeps up on you in not being able to cope with certain failures or public shaming or different things in the way that you might otherwise be able to do. In my case with, with self-worth, it, it showed up with, I had a massive, a massive desire to ha uh, hoard all the credit from my business partner. It's like, no, I'm the face of this company, not you. And that might've been implied, but the fact that I felt insecure about whether or not that was the case, where was that coming from? And at the time I didn't know, I had no idea, right? It was, and so eventually, you know, 10 years later, the success arises, you know, I'm living in New York. I've raised, I think, you know, somewhere between 18 and $20 million for this company. It's uplisted on the NASDAQ. We have an MBA superstar, Dwayne Wade as a spokesperson. And we sell our company to, to someone else and the whole thing implodes. Um, it lost $250 million in value over the 10 years after we sold it. Or sorry, not 10 years, in, in, in the year after we sold it. Wow. And all the while, my, that bubble that I was in or trying to create for myself to protect myself was popped. And I am left with nothing but the pain and that manifested in as anxiety and depression. And now I got to deal. This is the time I realize I have to deal with it. Mm. Right. If I want to be successful as a, as a father, as a husband, as a business partner, as a, as a businessman going forward, clearly something is there that has to be removed. <laughs> so. Um, so many things to, to pick up from there, but can you just speak to the idea of, insecurity being like rocket fuel uh, in your 20s so that's one of the ideas i've kind of explored in, in depth is that the need to prove the need to validate actually causes you to uh you know resist all barriers and um, reject all opposition um yeah. no, no becomes a, a gift if someone says no you can't do that or you won't do that it's like okay fantastic thank you now you've given me a reason and like like Jordan, you know, he, he looked for reasons why someone had slighted him or someone had offended him or someone said he wouldn't. And he even sometimes created those, fabricated those reasons. So he had this fuel source to go, right, well, now I've got a reason to go above and beyond what is physically normal and possible and I'm going to yeah. show you. So um, to take a company, you know, from nothing, from an idea hiking up Machu Picchu to uh, being listed on the stock market, like I, I couldn't even imagine... Uh, what that would be like or how you did that. <laughs> so um, can, can you just speak to this idea about insecurity being rocket fuel in, in that process? Yeah, it certainly was. You know, it's, I feel like the, the this is going to, I don't know how this will come across, 
But I feel like a lot of it comes down to, as part of that insecurity, is this, this self-feedback loop, but there's this, there's this need to impress, in my case, women. So, like, and I don't mean, well, <laughs> what I mean is like, so in high school as a runner, I, you know, you're not, you're not a football star or a rugby star or whatever. You are, you are at the bottom of the coolness totem pole. <laughs> like, you are so far. There are like, there's so many layers. So I always, you know, I'd fall in love with a girl in love and she'd break my heart over and over and over again. Right. And I felt like always throughout my life, that insecurity that was building on the opposite side of this like self-worth thing mm. was in part a, f a fuel biologically or inherently in me to procreate, to have a family, to, to have a, to, to build something that is my kingdom, if you will. Mm. And so I feel like this, the, the insecurity is is in part just inherently biological or evolutionary um in our evolution to us to do the thing that one of the things that we're here to do which is you know bring beautiful new life into the world so i felt like that was part of it um because to your point it's like well i'm gonna prove her wrong mm -hmm. or and then that translates to well in the competition of it that person's beating me in a race beating me in business essentially makes him superior and in order for me to survive i need to outdo this person and so i started to kind of recognize that pattern later on it was like my willingness or desire to you know to have to, to build this life meant i had to beat other people to build this life it was a very unabundant view of of the world and and what we can that there's unlimited stuff that we can have it's, it, it's a finite view and that insecurities i better grab some piece of this finiteness in order to stake my claim and have what i want and so i was tireless like that insecurity of self-worth of wanting to not be rejected by a woman wanting to beat out other men in order to put my place in rank i was there was no end until there was an end <laughs> until the well ran dry yeah. does that make sense was that uh, beautiful yeah thank you for describing that um i'm sure lots of people will be able to relate to that so thank you for giving that language but the way you ended that i think that's really the interesting thing until the well ran dry like it is uh there is a finite amount of energy to be able to drive that strategy and people crash and burn typically somewhere around mid thirties, sometimes earlier, sometimes later, but it is exhausting and unsustainable and, and toxic. And so if you don't find a way to confront that, face that and make some change, it, it looks, it looks like madness. I think that's the only way of describing what happens beautifully, inherently valuable people who act against their own best interests and the interests of others, but don't know how to get out of that. So, can you tell us more about the process? Uh, sorry to cut you off. Just um, no, no, yeah. uh, fascinated by the process of what you learned when you kind of came to the end uh, of yourself and the process of discovering, rebuilding, and 
some of those key discoveries, that'd be really fascinating to hear. And I'm sure the listeners would value from that. Yeah. And there's, there's a whole bunch, right? I mean, there's just, there's a whole bunch there. And because the way I see it is it's a lifetime journey. Mm -hmm. It's not a one year journey. We're, it seems to me that we're so flawed in our patterning in our biological patterning as, as, as humans, the way that we, we hear something like we're watching uh, a beautiful man or a beautiful woman on the television. And all of a sudden we feel inferior, mm. right? Or some person I've never met in my life tells me I'm crap because my company he lost his, his investment, which I understand um, completely and, and sincerely. And I, and I hold that, but the fact that then I can not separate the business from my own value as a human being, mm. the fact that we latch on to these things and they become the cycles of our life where it's like we get stimulated, we feel good, something happens, we feel bad and we can't exit it. And so there's so many layers of that patterning from the traumas of our life, from the traumas of a bad teacher, a bad experience. And it's not any of their faults. We're taking it on. And we have to, we have to go back and we have to untether these things and, and release them. And that comes with unbelievable radical acceptance. And so the process which, which came about with, I, I'm going to be very straight. I mean, it had, I, had, I had a coach. Mm. I had a more spiritual uh, mentor uh, who was a, you know, he was somewhere between a Zen Buddhist and a, and a business mogul. <laughs> you know, it's like hybrid there. I had a shaman and we explored um, plant medicine as well as non-plant medicine in terms of uh, helping release. I went to sweat lodges and because that, that whole journey inside a sweat lodge is you're, you're literally burning that out of you because there's, 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 you just want to scream. It's so hot in there that you want to, you end up screaming out layers of this thing. And I read and I read and I read and I read. And so this is really like a, five or six year journey from some level of awareness to some level of felt healing with still levels of healing left to go. And the process was really, once I became aware that I was telling myself this story, this story that I wasn't worthy, this that I went back to where that happened. And again, instead of being mad at my mom or my dad or whatever, because they're amazing, beautiful, loving parents and people and really always have been, I just had to accept that that happened and it had nothing to do with me. And I would journey back again, very, you know, mostly just in meditation or, um, out in nature, I journeyed back and I'd literally, I'd put my hand on the shoulder of myself, future me who's journeying back to younger me. I'd say, it's okay. Like I'd say that to me, it's okay. 
you know, whether it was the running, whether it was my parents' divorce, me taking that on because I was, I felt similar to my father. And so I felt my mother's rejection through her rejection of my father, which again, there's so many layers to why people separate that I'm only seeing it from go that one, one level. And I'm going back to him and saying, that's not your fault. You're a worthy human being. And I kept, the more I read, the more I meditated, the more heck having a, a warm bath, spending more time in nature, any one of those things gave me a window to go back and start to, to just accept all those moments as things that happened, but release myself from the stories that I'd created as a result of those moments. And the best times to do them, which is why it's so hard and so inconvenient, is because the best times to do them are when that emotionality is arising in you. When you are feeling low because of something, go find out what that something is and go work with it. Start releasing it, start understanding it. You don't have to fix it. I'm not saying you, have, you can't fix it, it's happened but you can understand it. And by understanding it, we can begin to release it. Um, if that makes sense. <laughs> Beautiful. Two, two things I'd love to explore more. Uh, radical acceptance. Can you just unpack that? Uh, is, is that just the process of going back and saying it happened? Well, I mean, yeah, yes. A radical acceptance is, a term that uh, Tara Brach, uh, she was a PhD um, Buddhist practitioner that I, I borrowed from her, but you see it in lots of places. We cannot change our pasts, right? And I mean, I, I feel like I know that there are, there are people in this world who have had to deal with unbelievable atrocities mm. in their homes, to their families, to their physical bodies, from other people, from other people projecting their own insecurities ultimately at them, right? And so, and far, far worse than anything I've had to, I've had to, to deal with. I've sat in ceremony with, with people who the things that they have shared have, you know, it's like, you went through that? Like, oh my gosh. Um, anyway, so you can't, but you can't, there's nothing you can do about it. It happened and you have to accept that first it happened and second that it had nothing to do with you. It had everything to do with them and their insecurity and their pain and what somebody had done to them. And that's the nasty cycle that we live in when we don't break, we don't break our patterns of insecurity. We pass them on either to our children or, or we project them onto somebody else. And so it's really those two things and those two things alone, accepting that the thing happened and accepting that it wasn't a reflection of you and your value in your life. Yeah, amazing. Thank you for explaining that. So the, the understanding was the second piece and that you've kind of just explained that as well. So acceptance and understanding. Uh, and it's very difficult to understand that it wasn't about you when you're living it because the the tendency as a child, especially to personalize and, um, and blame direct that in, internally as sense making creatures. So 
the value of going back is is essential to going back because I can't you probably can't ever understand it in the moment. The only way you could ever understand it is in hindsight is to go back and explore. Oh, look at that. Uh, I, I have a new level of understanding now with more emotional awareness, more more yeah. time, more distance, more maturity, and now I can understand. Um, yeah. yeah, it's we our lives are our lives provide us the feedback opportunities all the time, right? They provide us the interactions. If you started yelling at me on this call. I have a lot of fear still today of hostile behavior. My brother, who is married to a Latina, who is hot-blooded and this amazing, loving human being, he has had to adjust to realize that her passionate outbursts have nothing to do with him. Yes. And nor does, nor does she, nor does she, feel anything more about them. Right. But the point I'm making is that the feedback loop part, those things that are buried in us, our lives will always be offering us opportunities to face them, to go and do the work. Right. And then when we get one, we, we move past it a great deal. Maybe there's more, but there's no end. The only thing that we learn, I believe, I think maybe some, some, phenomenal human beings can free themselves entirely from themselves but for the most part where i'm trying to go is to get to a point where when i face that thing i have the tools i might still react i might still trigger but i have the tools and and i get faster at putting those tools into effect mm. to move beyond that right but we get the the trap is we let, let's say you're coaching someone and they feel amazing leaving that session. And then four days later they get re-triggered and they feel so bad that they got re-triggered that they can't put the tools to work. They end up going back down into the pain of it. And I catch myself doing that all the time, but that's where like, if you just have a pause, you you can oh awareness okay acceptance okay understanding and put those three things to practice um, which again from your book to praise it i mean you you were always driving the underlying thing to the thing that they were coming and saying help me like this is what's happening it's like no nah, i don't think that's what's happening right <laughs> so uh yeah that's I love the way that you describe this, but this idea of between stimulus and response is choice. And I think, I think that was, I think it was Viktor Frankl who was the first person to point that out. And through his very real lived experience in concentration camps to say, look at this. It appears like I have no choice in this, but I do. Even in this horror, there's a stimulus and, and there's a response and I could pause and decide how I'd like to respond. And, and that one bit of technology, that one thought, Stephen Covey says that's the thing that separates us from animals really is our ability to think about our thinking, the ability to stop and pause and choose an alternate path rather than just being triggered, acting instinctively and carrying on in a pattern of behavior that uh, has no end. And every time we do that, I think we give ourselves more choice and that awareness leads to more awareness and we begin spiraling upward and 
our growth continues. Every time we avoid that, I think it is a descent into being an animal, being animalistic in our passions, in our instincts, and um, that doesn't it doesn't lead to the development of our human consciousness. That's for sure. That's a big topic. Uh, <laughs> do, <you, yeah. laughs> do we want to go go there? <laughs> All right, yeah, maybe another conversation. It seems like we could have endless conversations about this. Uh, you mentioned reading was a key part of your process and um, I imagine still today you do a lot of reading. Have there been key books that you you revisit, that you recommend, that you gift? Uh, what, what, have, what have been your favourite books along the way? Uh, yes, the list is long, but um, uh, The Way of the Superior Man, David Dida, um, both for men and women. Uh, my wife and I read it the first time we seriously considered separating from each other. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> there was only two, but they, um, yeah, that was the first time that helped us understand the energetic and thus response differences between male and female energies, or mas- excuse me, masculine and feminine energies. Mm. And there it gave us context. That context, to your point, gave us the pause. Mm pause to work with to see oh this is what's channeling here energetically so that was that was a big book i've gifted that book more than i've gifted any book period and some men pick it up and they read it and others say i can't i can't get through it Mm. it's too it's too much i've just come Um, across that book in the last six months actually and and i feel exactly the same it's an extraordinary book and and now i gift it uh wherever i can as well (laughs) and some people it's it's like i can't deal uh, I was like, this is the right book at the right time, but uh, extraordinary. Intimate, intimate communion by him is another great one. Okay. He gets, he gets a little far out, farther out there on some of his other stuff, um, which even I haven't been able to digest, but those two strike this wonderful chord that I think like your book, essential reading, um, awareness by Anthony DeMello, the obstacles, the way by Ryan holiday, radical acceptance by Tara Brach. Brock, um, I mean, there's so many <laughs> meditations, Marcus Aurelius, mm. you know, these, this intersection of sort of Western stoic thought, Eastern philosophy, um, even, even aspects of, uh, the teachings of the Bible, all of it, I feel like there's, there's these wonderful intersections where it doesn't matter your ideology, your faith, your spirituality you can pull these core elements that keep reoccurring in different ways mm. and pick which one fits you mm. for, for what you're, you're dealing with. And, you know, when you talk just to, to, to take a very simple point, Ryan holiday, the obstacles away inside every obstacle is the lesson embedded. Hence don't avoid the obstacle, find it. But then you take a sort of, I don't know if it would be Taoist or whatever, but if you, if you kind of go into this other chain of thought and it's like, well, you just avoid the obstacles because that's actually the path of least resistance. You just go around them. Right. And so maybe the point I'm making is maybe there's a time when it's just too heavy. So you don't go pick up the boulder. You do need to be gentle and skirt around it, float around it, but that boulder is going to be waiting. But hopefully by that time, you're ready to 
to face that obstacle, right? And that's why this is a process. It's not, I mean, I don't know how long you're with your clients, six months, a year, 10 years, but it's, it's genuinely a 10 year process, right? And, and sometimes we need others to carry us. And sometimes our wisdom and our strength in a higher power or ourselves can carry ourselves. And that's why there's lots of books. Amazing. Yeah. I, I saw a quote yesterday, which has stuck with me. Uh, I didn't think it would. I thought I, I read it and I thought, no, oh, that's nothing. But then as you were talking, then it just came back and it was, uh, I'll misquote it, but the basic idea was that sometimes the most, uh, the most pure form of self love is to realize that now is not the time for change. Yes. And to your point that sometimes the, the ob- avoiding the obstacle would be the, the purest example of loving yourself. Other times it would be to face it head on. Um, and I think just that, that ability to realize that uh, it's okay and there's nothing to prove and nothing to defend and, and we only do what works. So uh, that's a big point in, in the coaching process when people kind of let go of the judgment of I need to be better, I need to be different and kind of realize, no, no, we, we only do what works. So if it wasn't working, um, you wouldn't have been able to sustain it anyway. It looks to the surface that it's dysfunctional and all terrible, but it, it, it is unsustainable if it's all terrible. It's meeting your need. It's keeping you alive. It's validating you. So sure. So part of you does love it. Part of you is finding value in this path and sure you want to, you want to let go of it. Um, and you can let go of it when you're ready, but you don't have to let go of it. And, and there's no judgment around a, a right or a wrong path. You, you're, you're so bang on. And I think that the, the secret lies in rest. And the concept of our Western society, maybe the whole world at this point, where rest is a bad thing, where you know, an animal, to give them credit, when they're injured, they rest. When we're injured, and I don't just mean a broken arm, I can mean, it can mean a broken heart. We don't rest. We are taught that rest is weakness, that, it, that we need to like roar on and then in in fact that's when we mask that's when we protect ourselves it's like put the rock tape on if you're a crossfitter (laughs) which i do you know the the rock tape on so that i don't miss a workout as a runner as you know yourself you and and there is a certain amount of courage in that i'm not denying that we are humans and we have to keep going but there are what's the Ecclesiastes, there's a time for everything, right? Um, am I saying that right, Ecclesiastics? Ecclesiastics. There's an appointed time for everything, which includes rest, which includes being vulnerable, which includes feeling your weakness, because <laughs> being able to feel that is in, in, is in itself strength, but everything that most of us have been taught from the time that we were born is the opposite of that. I, tell my, I catch myself telling my kids all the time, just stop crying so I can have a conversation with you about what's happened. I am teaching her it's not okay to be in that emotion, and I do that. And, you know, and I've probably already done it enough times to <laughs> know that I'm going to have to pay for some counseling later. But <laughs> <laughs> my, my wife and I, we say that all the time. Ah, look, we'll get them a coach from that 21. Right? <laughs> uh, it's inheritable. It's inheritable. But, uh, <laughs> but I love, I, I love uh, you know, he, hearing backstories for clients. It's one of the great privileges of being a coach. 
um, there's some very vulnerable conversations and people share some things that they've never even heard themselves say out loud, let alone share with anyone else, but always fascinated by the role of parents and the moments in time that seem to shape and change. And the thing that I love most about those stories is even perfect parents don't prevent their children from picking up limiting beliefs. Even, even parents who really nail it, who really do a fantastic job cannot prevent their children from telling interesting stories and not understanding and personalizing. Um, uh, the, the rest thing. So, so, so important. Uh, a, a key moment of, of transformation in my life was when I took a 12 month sabbatical in the pursuit of working out how to rest. And I, I got it wrong in a lot of ways early on because I dived into rest as I dived into work, you know, I 100%. So I kind of cut off everything right that 12 month sabbatical doing nothing and, and found it more traumatic than being you know, a workaholic until I kind of, sorry. Your pointed time. Yeah. Well, the, the realization was a rhythm of rest, um, yeah. rest and work together, uh, yeah. uh, fun and adventure and, and intensity and work. Um, so anyway, I, so I, as a result of that, um, developed a lifestyle where I have a, a sleep after lunch, I have a nap, a full, full 90 minutes most days after lunch. Yeah. And, <laughs> and it's extraordinary. And, and, um, yeah, it is a real highlight of my life, actually, those naps and not many people understand that. Sorry. Are you waking up super early or going to bed late or how do you break up your day? Very curious for that. Um, so I would go to bed. I would still have, you know, seven and a half, seven, yeah, seven to eight hours sleep. I would still have at night and then I would have, um, yeah, an hour to an hour and a half in the afternoon. Good for you, man. So, I love it. But one of the interesting things about this idea of rest is whenever a client signs up with me and we, we send them out the welcome pack to begin a journey, kind of signify, look, this is a big day. Most people will never make an intention to do this level of self-awareness and self-work. Uh, in, in the welcome pack, one of the things is an eye mask. And it's often the like, why, why did you send me an eye mask? But what, what would I do with that? Um, but, it, but it's to signify, look, one of the most important parts of this process is rest, learning how to rest, learning how to let go, to switch off, to stop. And it's so counterintuitive and so even more countercultural. It's rest. What are you doing? Like that's a waste of time. It's worse than a waste of time. You're going backwards if you're resting. But um, it, that is an important it's a crucial part of the process of awareness, discovery, love, um, making peace with yourself is learning to rest. I, and I will say all your listeners who are, who are uh, feeling guilty about not, I still don't know how to nap. I still have not learned how outside of a vacation when you, you know, you carve out that time or the occasional Sunday. I still haven't, um, I haven't learned. And, and that's been an interesting dynamic of, again, self-worth. And even in my relationship with my wife, where when, because we weren't balanced in, in our communications and we weren't, and we weren't, uh, how do I describe it? My, my naps were, were maybe selfish because I was working so hard that I thought that my work was more important than her work as a mother. Yeah, sure. I am guilty as charged for many, many years. I, I felt that. And um, 
because my work led to money and we talk about, you know, what's the driver, right? And so I would take naps and then she would be really upset with me for having taken a nap because she's tired too. Mm. And so I at first took on this secondary, like I'm not deserving of naps. But in reality, there was so much more to unpack there between I, I wasn't seeing her and I wasn't seeing her tiredness. And we weren't balancing the dynamic of the, the workload we both were carrying as parent and, and financial, you know, whatever provider. And that, that, that's, a, that's an equal relationship. And, and so, you know, again, a story got created and that's an adult story. I'm an adult yeah. at this point. Yeah, like, still. Right? Um, of self-worth because she projected at me and then I projected back to myself. And then, you know what I mean? So mm. kudos, to, I guess that's a long way of saying kudos to you. And, and that's one of the most wealthy dudes I know takes a daily 90, 90 <laughs> minutes. And if he can do it, it's way with, <laughs> you know, he can do it, any of us can do it, well, right? Of all the growth, of all the defining moments, uh, the positive defining moments and the things I look back on with most gratitude, it was learning how to rest. I, I would say that has, that has created more change in me than, than almost any other thing that I'm aware of. Um, so, uh, yeah, it certainly wasn't an easy decision. But I think that one of the catalysts for that was Tim Ferriss's book, The 4-Hour Workweek. Um, I read that book twice the first time I read it, it just it blew my mind. And, and oh, yeah. this idea that time, money, and mobility were actually what was luxurious for, for a human being. And that was the best of what we could hope for. And um, just realizing I had none of those three and that most people I knew had none of those three, even the people who look successful, all, you know, even if they had money, their money was tied up to their business. So it wasn't very liquid. Uh, it was requiring all of their time and they were stuck to one location. And so I just thought, my goodness, yeah. I can free myself uh, and get time, money, mobility. That would be extraordinary. But I made a conscious decision to, to think, well, which one would I start with first? Because if I think I'm going to, if I chase money first, I reckon that's probably the trap. I think that's the, the thought is, well, when I have enough money, then I can rest. And um, when I have enough money, then right. I can have time. I'm like, I'm not sure you ever get there. I think the, the trap would be, well, there's never, I never have enough. Um, so I thought, right, well, I'm going to get, I'm going to get time back. That's, that'll be my first one. And I don't know how I'll pay for it. Uh, uh, but that's what I'm going to do. So, so the 12 month sabbatical was a very dangerous move to go. I don't know how this is going to work out, but there's only one way to find out. So let's have a look. Uh, what was your balance between trusting that it was going to work out that the money was going to backfill the mm. time value, and designing it and tim ferris again like i think he invented the word lifestyle design mm, yeah so in, i think he did i'm not sure but and intentionally then saying okay if i want time and i'm going to just the money part's possibly a trap which i think you're right where was your balance on just letting it unfold versus designing it as you went Hard to say in actual fact, uh, it felt like the first thing was to go, I'm going to, I'm surrendering into this. This is the right decision. I'm walking through this door, 12 months, no work. Um, 
then I decided that's not really sustainable. That's not really what I want anyway, because to do nothing um, is just as bad as doing everything. So then it was the thought, well, what if I could design this, if I could have the ideal scenario, uh, what would I do? So then it still wasn't really about money. It was about, it was about contribution and work and, and enjoyment and things that I'm good at. So I thought ideally I'd only work 24 hours a week, spread over seven days. There'd be high energy and low energy and every day. There'd be fun. There'd be rest. There'd be work. Uh, there'd be play. Um, and then I thought, well, well, then how would I create in that? If I only had 24 hours to work, what activities in those 24 hours would be uh, the most effective and the most productive, uh, and most financially rewarding? So that's kind of how I begin to think about that challenge. Yeah, that's yeah. great to give yourself that. If, if I only had this, it forces yeah. me to think, right? I, from a startup perspective, there's a great uh, example to I, again, I'm not, I'm not inside the startup, so I can't speak to it, but the same founder started a company that's now worth 4 billion and another one that lost, I'm told 300 million. Mm. And guess which one started first? The $4 billion one. This one started with hundred million dollars in investment and it ended up losing everything because when we're not forced to think like an entrepreneur where it's like, I got, I got five options. I got one choice. In your case, you limited the hours. And so I'm just going to do everything. Like in this other case, we end up tipping the scales and not being, not looking at things through that hard lens that allows us to make better decisions and ask better questions um, to ourselves that well, the better questions leads to the better decision. So I love that you did that. I love that you went, if I just had, this it's uh, it reminds me i need to redo that exercise because mm. <laughs> i've taken on tons of consulting contracts and played well, yeah it's been useful across a number of areas for me and i think it's it's parkinson's law at play as well um which is work work will expand to the amount of time given for its completion um, but that, that equates to everything. Expenses will expand to the amount of profit available given to spend. You know, the more you earn, the more you spend. So the are kind of putting compression pants on yourself and creating some kind of arbitrary limitations is useful to defeat that kind of psychological bias in many ways. Um, so, so what's next for you? Where, where are you taking this thing? I'm, I'm fascinated by when you, when you look to the horizon, uh, you know, where do you see your life going? What project you're already working on? Tell us, tell us a bit about that. Well, I used to think I knew, right? I used to think like when I started the underwear company, that was it, right? This is, there's, there's, there's a linear line with some pain points, but otherwise I'm going to blast my way through that, right? In a sense, I blame it on the running because a running is, it's A to B. You still have to work hard. You still have to struggle, but it's A to B. There's no, there's no detours. Mm -hmm. Life's not the same. <laughs> there's plenty of detours, you know, A to B. If, and, and so I had, I'd started another company, a travel clothing company. We did a phenomenal Kickstarter. And then, you know, COVID-19 happened and I've written and so the company's going, but it's still going, but it taught me in the span of three weeks, the entire travel around the world can shut down. 
if, if that can happen, anything can happen. And I need to be more flexible as an entrepreneur and less rigid in how do I adapt and morph into the, the, the fast changing world of life, the life that we live without giving up. It's not about giving up. It's about giving in, right? Saying, okay, we need to adjust. We need to, we need to move the margin left or right in, in order to get to the same goal. So the, the book, I'm, I'm incredibly excited about it. It is like, it's, a, it's effectively the book I wish I'd read as an entrepreneur. I, I call it a book of questions because the, although it's woven through the narrative of the story of Naked, it, it asks the questions that I, I needed to know to ask as a first or second time entrepreneur. Um, you know, the, the answers vary depending on your business, depending on your personality, all these different things. But the questions are always the same. And there's lots of them. And so I just, I point people to the questions they need to ask. And, and I'm really excited to share that message. But moreover, I see entrepreneurship as a journey of self-acceptance and a journey and, well, yeah, self-acceptance and self-awareness because we go kind of tying it back to the original part of our conversation. It provides all those opportunities to always be learning and growing as a human being because you're always facing new things. So how do I apply? How do I let go? How do I, like you said, um, if I only had this, you know, so I think it just, it gives us such a wonderful path to, to, to create uh, our lives and our, and our, and our inner strength and cultivate those things. And I really want to help entrepreneurs do that. You know, with the, the business hat as well as the self-awareness hat and put those two things together and see where that goes. I don't know. You know, I could lead somewhere else. I, I don't know. <laughs> Amazing. Um, where is that book available? Uh, when, when is this coming out? <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, that, book, that book will be available probably. I think I'm going to keep it just to Amazon. Um, for the first little while and uh, just have a very simple central point of distribution. It'll be audio, uh, digital as well as hard copy. And it launches January 15th. Okay. Wow. Very exciting. Um, one, one question. This is a burning question I've had since the moment I read your bio and heard your story. Um, and it's a question I haven't asked you yet. Uh, did you get to meet D Wade? Oh yeah, many times. Oh my God! I um, I'll tell you the story. This is this shows you what a graceful human being D Wade is. Okay. So it was either the I think it was the first time I met him. It was the first or second. I, I it kind of blurs together. I went to his I went to his basketball camp. So like I played with him. Wow. Well, I played in the same area as him. I don't know. If any I was at the level of playing with him, but he goes to me. He says, how do you shoot, Joel? Referring to, you know, some of the basketball, like not in basketball, you know, do I hit five out of 10 shots or, you know, whatever, how's my shooting percentage? And I said, without even thinking, I, I hit nine out of 10 shots. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't hit nine out of 10 shots. <laughs> I wait. <laughs> like, and I said, eh, no, I mean, Sometimes. And other times I hit one out of 10 shots and he just stares at me and he's like, you and everybody else in the NBA. So it's like, <laughs> there's, there's a guy who, 
just just real he he knew i was like nervous and he just you know he went with it so amazing well there you go that's that must have been a real treat oh he's he's cool he's cool <laughs> Uh, seems like a good place to leave the conversation, a uh, very rich conversation. I'm so glad that we uh, recorded this. Just wonderful. Where, where can people find more about you and your work and uh, get ready for this book? Joelprimus.com is everything. Uh, that the book will be there. My blogs are there. Right. Companies I work with, everything. So yeah, joelprimus.com. Wonderful. Thanks so much for your time, Joel. Thank you for sharing so honestly. And uh, there was so much wisdom in there. I'm sure the listeners will greatly benefit from that. So thanks a million. Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity to be with you. Leave it there. You've been listening to The Insecurity Project. The aim of the game is to show up to life unhindered by doubt, fear and insecurity so that you can be at your best where it matters most. Now, if you're ready to begin the work of becoming unhindered in your life, The Unhindered Short Course is an eight-part video series designed to help you do exactly that. And at only $99 for a limited time, it's an offer too good to refuse. For more information, go to theinsecurityproject.com.